Welcome to the Jay Kim Show. This is your host, Jay Kim. I am an investor, author, and fitness entrepreneur. And for the first time in Asia, I sit down with the world's most brilliant minds in business, investing, and entrepreneurship. You'll learn all the secrets, strategies, and formulas to becoming a successful entrepreneur directly from the masters. If this is your first time listening, thank you for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week with the goal of providing actionable insight to you, the listener, with every single episode. And now, on to the show. Today's guest is Titus Mikalski, managing partner of Fresco Capital, which is a global venture capital firm. Titus has been investing, working, and living in Asia since 1999. Previously, he was the CIO of equities at PMA Investment Advisors, an institutional hedge fund. He launched this fund in 2002 and then sold it in 2006 for over 200 million US dollars. So he knows a little thing or two about market timing. He's an active supporter of the startup ecosystem here in Hong Kong. And in today's episode, we talk about the problems that we face in the ecosystem here, and he offers some constructive solutions on how to improve. Tidus also talks about the due diligence process at Fresco Capital and what is involved in that before they make an investment into a company. I know you're going to enjoy the show. Let's jump right in. Okay, uh, Titus, thank you so much for joining us on the Entrepreneurship in Asia podcast. I uh, really ap- appreciate your time. Happy to be here. Okay, so let's get started. Um, you know, you're on, you are very well known within the ecosystem here in Hong Kong. You probably don't need an introduction locally, but for our listeners abroad in Southeast Asia and, and in the U.S., why don't you just introduce yourself? Who is Titus uh, Mikowski? Uh, what do you do for a living? Okay, sure. Happy to give you a little bit about my story. I was born in Poland, grew up in Canada, uh, lived in London, Tokyo, Singapore, and then in Hong Kong. And when I came to Hong Kong, I thought I'd stay for three to five years. Mm-hmm. And now, 17 years later, uh, I'm still here. So obviously, it made an impression on me. Wow. Part of it was uh, the fact that I could continue to think globally. And so um, it's been a place where we started a couple of companies, including our current company, Fresco Capital, which is an early stage global VC. And so we have mm. uh, three managing partners. In addition to myself, we have Stephen Forte based in Menlo Park and Alison Baum based in Tokyo. And so the three of us spend a lot of time on airplanes uh, meeting each other, meeting our companies, and, and meeting with other partners. Right. Okay. And so before you... Now, you're one of the founding partners of Fresco Capital, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yep. We started okay. uh, through my angel investing and then scaled it up into a fund. I see. Okay. And so before you were a, before you founded Fresco Capital as a sort of early stage private equity type investor, um, you were a public uh, markets investor, is that right? Yeah. So before Fresco, uh, the previous company we started a company called PMA, and that was uh, with some other folks. We started that in 2002, and it was an institutional hedge fund, which we scaled to $3 billion in assets, and we actually sold the company in 2006. So mm. we got lucky on the Good timing. timing. Yeah, and uh, as part of that experience, I really enjoyed meeting with these very successful entrepreneurs who had you know, actually built companies to IPO and mm-hmm. you know, traveling around the region and seeing how they started and scaled. Uh, the, the part which I was less excited about was the short-term time horizon 
of public markets. And, you know, even during my time, it just got shorter and shorter. And so that was the reason to focus really on venture capital and working with portfolio companies. One was um, to, to be able to work with entrepreneurs uh, more to build their business. And two was you, because you could do that with a long-term time horizon. Right. So, so then, you know, you, you mentioned there was your, your sort of angel, your personal, was it your personal angel investment portfolio that you started after you sold PMA and then you, you then scaled and built Fresco Capital around that portfolio? Yeah, we started it uh, like that. And, you know, at this point, Fresco Capital is very much an institutional fund. So, you know, when we, when I started, it was early 2011. And then by 2012, we had turned it into a fund structure with external investors and the other partners joined uh, very soon after. Got it. Okay. So how big is your, your team now uh, at Fresco? You mentioned you had three managing partners in the, in us, uh, Tokyo and in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we've got eight people in total. And then we also have uh, a, a network of folks we call impact partners, which help our portfolio companies that, you know, they do everything from helping with coaching teams to, um, to business partnerships. And then finally core to our model is working with strategic partners in our local countries. So uh, some of these strategics are investors in our funds and they value not only the fund itself as in terms of returns and, and money, but also the business opportunity, right? Because what's happened is a lot of these traditional businesses, you know, they might be in business for over a hundred years and they realize that that traditional business is going to transform in the next 20 years. And they better figure out what's going on. Um, so by investing in our fund and working with us, you know, it's not only just the returns that they can get, but also the actual transformation of their business. Okay, that makes sense. And how many companies, uh, portfolio companies, do you guys have now? So we're just under 50 companies, uh, wow, mostly okay. headquartered in the U.S., um, but mm -hmm. all with a very global cross-border perspective. And so we, we typically are helping our U.S. companies come to Asia mm. uh, across different countries. We also have companies headquartered in Asia that are going global, um, either within Asia or other, to other markets. And then finally, even in our portfolio, we have a number of companies that do have European offices as well. So we really do end up with a pretty global perspective. Right. And is the reason why most the majority of your companies uh, sort of US based is because just because that's where the talent is. And that's where you see the opportunity from these guys when they're expanding globally. You, you can play a role in their global expansion into, say, China or Japan. Is, is that why that, that your portfolio has shaped up the way it has? Yeah, it's, um, I think it's tied back to the history of the startup ecosystems. And so our exposure has a pretty reasonable uh, map to you know, the, the maturity of the ecosystem. So the Bay Area is our biggest, mm. and you know, that's no surprise. New York is also a big one for us. Um, and then it just becomes much more case by case of where we have a presence and, and where we don't. Uh, and, and then finally, the, the big swing factor is the cross-border emphasis. So right now, we have more companies based in the U.S. coming to Asia. Mm -hmm. As the ecosystems in Asia become more mature over the next 10 years, over the long term, we definitely see more of our portfolio companies you know, being headquartered in Asia and, and going global. So we do think there's going to be a shift. Right. But 
we're just going to let the opportunity set decide the timing of that shift. Right, right. Okay, so that's a good transition that you, you've brought up. So uh, talking about Asian ecosystems and particularly the ecosystem here in Hong Kong, um, you know, I, I moved to Hong Kong in 2005, so probably a little bit after you, but I've been sort of following the scene uh, less actively than you have. But why don't you, uh, can you explain to us exactly what has happened between when you first came here and you started angel investing versus now? I mean, there's obviously some improvement, uh, but I feel like we have a long way to go. What have you sort of uh, observed uh, as, as someone that's a very active participant in the ecosystem here? Yeah, so I, th- I think just like with other ecosystems, there's been a huge amount of progress in Hong Kong. And I would say that it really started to uh, get accelerate in about five, six years ago. And that's when things started to pick up again after the financial crisis. And then every year there's been uh, improvement. And so you've got to start with the basics. And I think that's what's happened in Hong Kong. There was, you know, the initial focus was on just building up awareness of what are some of the opportunities uh, and getting people excited about entrepreneurship. And I think that's clearly in place in Hong Kong, especially among younger people. Um, Mm. And then, you know, the next stage is building out the infrastructure. So we've got co-working spaces, we've got now accelerators. Um, So I I think when I look at ecosystem building, ultimately the number one most important thing is talent mm-hmm. and uh, that's a challenge everywhere and you know that's a challenge even in the bay area is making sure that startups are able to recruit the best talent and retain the best talent and so that's uh, a challenge for hong kong specifically but i don't think that's unique i think that's a challenge uh, globally and it's it's about being able to attract talent from traditional companies it's also you know, the reality that a lot of the best talent in the world can choose where, the, where they go. Mm. Um, I think Hong Kong's been fortunate that there's been a, a pretty interesting inflow of talent from other parts of the world. Uh, and that's, that's been helpful for the ecosystem because that can accelerate the process. Mm-hmm. Um, so to the extent that, you know, the, the, uh, Hong Kong can remain relatively open to bringing in talent, I think that's that's very positive. So, how much how much of a role does the government uh, play uh, in this? Um, so, you know, I I'm good friends with I'm sure you are with all the people over at Invest HK and Start Me Up HK. Like, how much of a role have they played, and and is there more that they can do to support the ecosystem, or is it more of like you say, just talent that has to come to Hong Kong, or maybe Hong Kong just needs a big win, a big an Alibaba type uh, startup that's homegrown that actually makes it to put it on the map. Yeah, so I think there's a lot of things that everyone can do, uh, and I think there's. It's always tempting for people to say, "Oh, if only the government would fix this or fix that." <laughs> uh, I think there's a lot of things the government can do around social issues, and so mm. you know, from my perspective, when it comes to government resources, the question is, is you know, who should the government help? Right. And so uh, I think there's a short list of people that the government doesn't need to help. Uh, so let's start off with rich angel investors. You know, I don't think the government of Hong Kong should be um, subsidizing angel investors with tax breaks. Mm. Right? Ta- tax rates are not the right. problem in Hong Kong. <laughs> so that, I don't think that's really an issue. I think there's a lot of social issues that the Hong Kong government should you know, be uh, more effective in, in addressing. Um, but then when it comes to startups themselves, uh, I'll again really come back to talent. I think talent is the key thing. In addition to the issue of uh, allowing 
talent to come in. When it comes to homegrown talent, I think the government should be looking at things like life skills, education, and vouchers, right? So giving workers uh, the vouchers to be able to go out and use them for education skills, whether it's at traditional universities or um, some of the, the private entrants, and basically let individuals decide how they want to use those uh, vouchers. I think that's a really interesting opportunity that the government should be experimenting with. Mm. You know, whether they end up doing more on that, I don't know. But to me, that would be something that they could do specifically. Interesting, interesting idea. I mean, I think one of the other challenges that I, when you talk about private funding, the, one of the challenges that I have seen and sort of observed is is with the education and the sort of the mentality. So, like the 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 old the old money in Hong Kong has all been made basically off property. I mean, if you want to make it black and white, it's you know. And so, Hong Kong investors, you know, traditionally they're they're not educated and they don't know as much about early stage investing. I believe. They would no sooner go to you know the stock market, the public equity market, or or even Macau and get and gamble or buy an apartment than they would to invest in startups. So I think that, uh, and and as you said, in the last five years, I think this is this is obviously improved massively with the amount of co-working spaces and and education that's out there available uh, to the community. But one of the challenges that I saw early on was that none of these guys, like none of the private investors, actually wanted to. It, they they weren't educated enough, and they thought that, you know, investing into a startup uh, was just throwing your money away. And and to be fair, as an angel investor, a lot of times it is. But if you really kind of study it and know what you're doing, um, you can probably have a higher higher chance of success as an investor, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I th- I think there's the good news is in the last few years there's a lot more people interested in investing in startups and and as as you said you know there's a lot of people in hong kong that do have money and maybe we're in other areas whether real estate or finance and are now getting more involved in startups as investors the challenge uh, from my perspective sometimes is that the constraint on investing in startups is not money the constraint is actually time mm. right if if people had the time i think they could do it but you know, usually people don't have the time, and so if they're doing it as a hobby, I think that's where you run into some some challenges. And to put it in perspective, for us as a fund, we look at more than a hundred opportunities for every one investment that we make. Wow! Right, and so that's you know, so that's at least ninety nine times that we're saying no. Right, and then there's statistics out there about what does it take to to succeed as an early stage investing. And then the numbers are pretty clear. Um, if you do less than 20 hours of due diligence, your average expected return is, is essentially 1x. So mm. you, you, you could get your money back, which is not great. If you do 20 hours or more, your expected return is more than 5x. Mm. And so when you then say, you know, even if you don't do that amount of due diligence on all 100 companies, even if it's some fraction, that's still a lot of time on just filtering deal flow. And then um, when it comes to early stage investing, one of the other key points is you need a diversified portfolio, right? So uh, you can't, you shouldn't just be investing in one company, probably at least 10, probably closer to 20 to 30. And so when you start to do that, and then the fact that you have to help the companies after you invest, you know, suddenly you, you come to the conclusion that this should be a full-time job, (laughs) right? And that's essentially the conclusion, you know, that was the learning process I went through. 
And I said, yeah, actually, I'm really excited because I think there's a huge opportunity. Wow. So I think, I think what we need is we do need more people that take it seriously, right? So I, I, people ask me, do you want more funds that are doing early stage investing? And I say, yes. And that surprises people because they say, you know, well, isn't that competition? Right. And I say, no, I'd, I'd rather have high quality investors who really know what they're doing. I think that's good for the ecosystem. Mm. Um, but to the extent that people don't want to commit the time, uh, then yes, they should be investing in and in supporting people that are. So investing in funds or in other structures where you know those casual investors they can still participate, but they also are appreciative of the time commitments. And as you said, if if you're an early stage founder and and you're working night and day, and you're getting you know these random emails from your investor that. It may not be as um, helpful. Mm. Right? It's not necessarily going to uh, support the business as much as somebody who's doing it full time. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's a very, that's a I've, I haven't heard that metric before the twenty hour metric. But when you put it in in that context, you know, if, let's say you're working a forty hour week and you're devoting let's say two companies that you can look at per week, and so if you look at a hundred companies, so every what 50 days you can make one investment so you're making like five five a day five a year if you're a full-time uh, you know and you're doing your proper due diligence right <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's not easy right I, th- I think that's what people don't realize they think it's about money but it's actually about mm, time very good very interesting point um that's awesome so so okay so let's let's dive into some of this now uh some of the stuff that that probably a lot, a lot of our audience wants to hear okay so when fresco capital looks to make their investments what what are they looking for specifically what can a startup founder uh, do if anything to uh, to to increase his chances, his or her chances of being noticed by your team. Yeah. So at the high level, we we do advise founders to find the right investors mm. for their company, and and so for many situations, we're just not the right fit, right? So I think there's certain things that we focus on, uh, and there's certain things we don't. So. Um, we're, we're pretty transparent in the areas that we focus on. So education technology, uh, digital health, and how technology is changing work. So when you look at those three areas, the thing that they all have in common is these are, these are uh, industries and opportunities where technology has had less of an impact in the last 15 years. Mm. Right? So if you think about it as a consumer, you have these amazing consumer apps and wonderful experiences, and then you go to the office and you work with you know, usually pretty crappy software, mm-hmm. right? And uh, similarly in healthcare and education, the overall experience for people working there and for the users is you know, suboptimal to, to say the least. Mm. So those are the, the areas of opportunity that we're focused on. And so when it comes to people that are building, let's say, you know, the next consumer social network, we're just not going to be a great fit. So I think that's, that's the high level Right. Uh, overview. Uh, and then on the specific process, we look at the team first. And of course, we have some specifics that we're looking for. But a lot of times what we're really focused on is the fit between the team and the, the product in the market, right? So we call it mm. founder market fit. Ah, nice. Right? And, and so that's an important thing. Um, and then, yes, there has to be sustainable business opportunity. And then finally, um, of course, we do look at the deal structure itself. So we go through a process, uh, but we're able to go through it pretty quickly. 
And, and you guys invest in, is it just, is it C to, to A and then beyond, or is it just sort of on the Series A and beyond level? We like to get involved early. So uh, we can go as early even as uh, pre-product, pre-revenue. Okay. But that's, wow. but that's rare. Um, and then at the latest we'll get involved in is at the Series A as a first check. So okay. that's the range that we'll invest in. So it's pretty broad. Our sweet spot, however, is the classic seed stage, which is, mm-hmm. you know, the company has a product, uh, has some revenue, and it's it's built out something, but you know there are some questions or risks that remain, and that's certainly the the area we tend to um, be most active in. So classic seed stage. Right. Okay. Got it. And uh, okay. So listeners, uh, first of all, make sure you're targeting the right. If you, if you haven't started yet, make sure you're targeting one of those uh, key areas that that Fresco invests in. And then I love what you said about the founder market fit. That's a good little uh, phrase there. So that's. I think. I think that's probably quite prevalent within a lot of the famous investors. You know. I mean, the founder's personality versus the idea is much more uh, important, uh, especially if you're going to be in there, you know, rolling up your sleeves at the seed stage, helping these guys gain traction and, and get to the next level, right? I want to talk about, uh, you know, you, you've been a public market equities investor. You've seen a lot of ups and downs in the, in the market. You've seen bubbles and you've seen them pop. Um, so how do you feel about the state of early stage investing right now? Are we in a bubble? Are we going to uh, be in a bubble or, or 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 not? Are we out of the woods? Yeah, uh, we we're fortunate that we get to see what's going on in different markets and different parts of the world, mm. and so I think a lot of emphasis is on what's going on in the Bay Area, and at the same time, you know, there's other markets, you know, whether it's uh, China or even Japan, that have actually at some point seen higher valuations, mm-hmm. and and so those markets sometimes have been actually more cyclical. The The good thing with the Bay Area is that there's a pretty mature market. And so, you know, while valuations can get excessive at the early stage, people have been through cycles. And so it's maybe not quite as extreme. Mm. Uh, where I think there were, there were more challenges was in late stage investing, right? So the, yeah. the pre-IPO mm. growth stage investing area. And I think that area clearly got a little overheated and now it's pulled back. At the early stage for us, we just feel like ultimately investing through the cycle is the right way to go. And similarly with founders, you know, building a business through the through the cycle is definitely the right strategy. And so in a market where capital is abundant, people think that's a great time, but what people forget about is that if everyone has money, then what that means is that your competitors are probably cutting prices aggressively mm. and there's this massive war for talent right right so that's not actually good for yeah. companies and then when the fundraising market is tough people think that's negative but the benefit is costs are down uh, employee you know availability and retention is much better and when you're going to see customers there's a lot less competition so i think founders and investors that appreciate the the upsides of softer fundraising markets mm. are the ones that can really build large companies. And then on the, on the flip side, when things are good, sometimes the danger is you don't want to believe your own hype, right? So don't get too caught up in all the stories and the awards. Yeah. So we try to stay away from that game and really focus on building sustainable businesses. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's, that's good advice uh, for, for startup founders. I mean, the, 
regardless of funding environment, I think the cream will always rise to the top and, and, and the strongest will survive, you know. And so if you can, if you can build a business in a soft environment, then uh, that's pretty good. Uh, that's pretty good chops, right? So, mm-hmm. okay, so let's talk about uh, some of the companies in your portfolio. Are there maybe a hand, maybe three companies that you're most excited about right now? I mean, obviously, you, you're probably excited about all of them all uh, 50 or, or 40, what have you. But um, wh- which one of the Hong Kong startups that you'd like to mention on this interview? So there's a company called Snap Tea that we have mm. where you can design a t-shirt on your phone in 30 seconds and uh, oh, awesome. beautiful designs. They, you know, they, they got the obviously production process um, and then also the global logistics. So what's fantastic about Hong Kong as a base for that is you can literally cover the world just out of Hong Kong. Right. The incremental uh, update with them recently has they've been working on offline experiences mm. and without giving too much away because they are in some confidential discussions, mm. you know, essentially what it combines is some augmented reality with in-person experience and then voila, that becomes your you know, T-shirt. Wow. You can, you can have that experience uh, obviously saved, right? So, you know, you can get those experiences um, in a very... Uh, dramatic form, not just sharing online. So that's Very that's cool. pretty exciting for us. Yeah. Another one I'll, I'll highlight again because it's a little bit more of consumer mm-hmm. and relevant for uh, uh, younger people mm-hmm. is a company called Launch Pilots, which connects brands with university students, especially in Hong Kong. Okay. So what they do is there's a lot of university clubs that are are looking for sponsorships and. Um, are obviously run by very busy students, right? So Mm. what the platform does is it helps connect them with these brands that are really interested in reaching out to students but have no way to manage that relationship. And so it's great for the brands because they're building this relationship uh, with university students. And at the same time for the students, they're not being exposed to advertising in, in a traditional way, it's much more of an authentic experience of you only engage with a brand that you're actually passionate about. Is it free, like for the brand, like, or is so it the, like the... The brands pay for the advertising just like they would pay for any other kind of mm-hmm. uh, advertising experience. Right. But I think the difference is the level of engagement you get with the students, ah, right? Because, you know, this is not just some banner ad flashing. Yeah. This is about students selecting, yes, I want to support this brand. Right, right. Got it. Okay, and, and what was the name of that company again? It's called Launch Pilots. Launch Pilots. Okay, yeah, we'll have it all in the show notes and linked up. Okay, so uh, Titus, thanks so much for your time. We're going to look to wrap up here. Uh, I just have two final questions for you. The first is, what is one final piece of actionable advice that you would give to an aspiring entrepreneur or startup founder in Hong Kong? in this ecosystem? Yeah, so one of the uh, favorite pieces of advice that I've heard is uh, given by a guy named Felix Lam, who's also a local Mm -hmm. angel investor. And Mm -hmm. essentially it's start small, think big, Mm. right? And I think this is is something which is a bit of a paradox for a lot of young founders, especially. It's on the one hand, you do want to be ambitious, right? So you do want to have that change the world mentality and not just thinking about, oh, I, you know, I'm, I want to make a product just for Hong Kong. Right. But having said that, you don't start with that big vision. You have to start with something really, really small and show that that works. Right. And so that there's an inherent tension between those two. Right. But as long as the 
the founder is clear and understands that you can start really, really small with a very basic experiment, part-time, you know, in, in, in a very low-cost way. And then you go step-by-step step towards that big vision. Because I think a lot of founders do the opposite. And they, you know, they end up trying to do 10 things at once yep. and not doing any of them very well. And then even though they're ambitious, they haven't actually gone to this math. You know, they have they don't have necessarily the long term vision. Right. That's very good advice. I mean, and it'll save end up saving the founder a lot of time in the long run. Uh, it's kind of like the lean startup type thing where you just get the MVP out and start small and, and validate it in the market. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I think also the think big part is important, too, because if you just start small <laughs> and you don't have a, if you don't know where you're going, you'll get there. Right. So. Okay. Awesome. Thanks for the advice. And uh, last question is just uh, where can people find you? Where can they follow you? Uh, any links that you want to, uh, to give to the audience? Yeah. So, uh, you know, certainly our website, fresco.vc, mm-hmm. is an easy one. And then the other place I would point people to is uh, our Medium publication. Oh, so okay. It's called Fusion by Fresco. And that's a relatively, relatively new effort where we have our content plus content from some external partners. And so we're pretty excited about not only being able to share what we do, but also uh, what other people are are saying. Um, so we're certainly open to work with other people about content that they think is relevant for that. Oh, fantastic. And that's on Medium, right? The- that's on Medium, which is a new yep. uh, uh, communication mm-hmm. platform, which we've enjoyed using. And, and so we've been putting our publication there. It's called Fusion by Fresco. Fusion by Fresco. And it's it's, it's kind of like a startup blog or founder blog type thing? It's- both. It's not just for startups mm-hmm. and founders. It's also for corporate innovation and basically just as as the name implies, uh, connecting different worlds. Right. Okay. So I think that's that's still a gap in the market, which is everyone's a little bit in their own bubble, and we need to make more connections between these different bubbles. Okay. Great. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Titus. Thanks for your time. I appreciate it uh, so early on on the. Uh, Tuesday morning, but uh, we really enjoyed having you on the show, and I'll definitely let you know when it drops. Thanks a lot, Jake. Awesome. Thanks. It was a pleasure. Yep. Bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. All the show notes and links can be found over at jkimshow.com. Come back often and make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. Don't forget to join us next week for another exciting episode of The J. Kim Show. I'd love to hear your comments. You can find me on Twitter at jkimmer, J-A-Y-K-I-M-M-E-R. See you guys next week. This podcast is brought to you by Hack Your Fitness, the high achiever's guide to getting ripped in under three hours a week. If you're anything like me, you're probably working a full-time job or jobs and trying to find time to balance family life, social life, and last but not least, fitness. Look, I get it. I'm a full-time investor and entrepreneur myself and father of two. So how am I able to stay fit year-round without spending hours and hours in the gym killing myself on the cardio machine? After struggling for the last 15 years trying every workout and diet under the sun, I finally designed a system that allows me to achieve and maintain single-digit body fat for life in under 3 hours a week. Cardio not required. 
Head on over to hackyour.fitness and download my free 13-page guide that teaches you the simple science behind efficient fitness and smart nutrition and gives you everything you need to know to finally take control of your life. That's hackyour.fitness.